Welcome to Faith Sermons and Studies with Pastor Joe DeVitro. Restricted himself by time. Remember, Jesus spent how many years on earth? 33. How many hours a day did Jesus get? Do you realize 80% of Jesus' life was involved in work on this planet? He was a carpenter, right? He was about his father's business. He, his father was what? A carpenter. His heavenly father was God the father, but his earthly father was Joseph. And Joseph had Joseph carpenter shop. I personally don't believe he was a wood carpenter. I personally believe he was a builder. I think he was a stonemason at best. Uh, if you look around Jerusalem, how much wood do you see? Now, what do you see? What are buildings made out of? Jesus talked about stones as principles of preaching or teaching. Uh, he said that uh, on a, oh, what's that stone called that you set the whole building on to make sure it's square? What's that one called? The cornerstone. Who told you that's a cornerstone? Jesus himself, right? How would Jesus know what a cornerstone was if he was all about wood? No, he was a builder that understood how buildings were constructed, how buildings worked. And uh, so when it comes to truths about time and productivity, I, I think there's only one place that we can really look at to find out how to really be productive in the way that God ordained. And that is scripture. And that is the author of time. Do you realize that God supersedes three things, right? Space, matter, and time. So if we're bound by time, who bound us by time? Who's the inventor of it? God. And if God's the inventor of it, do you think he would have gave us instructions in his word how to manage it? And what to do with the time that we have and how to live the life that God wants us to live to the fullest according to his principles, his manner, and his mission for us in life. I want to start by looking at three passages of scripture this morning. The first one's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 58. Let's read this verse together, shall we? Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for you know that your in vain in the Lord. I got caught quoting King James, all right? You got me. I've memorized it in King James. I know it in King James, and I'm trying to read it in, a, in another. That's why I have you read the verses mostly. Um, so knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain, or for all you King James folk out there, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So which one's right? Well, in Greek, there's no word order, so it doesn't really matter. English dictates how this is read. Uh, so knowing that your labor is not in vain. Notice a couple words in there. Work and labor. Right? See them in there? The Bible assumes that we are people that work and that labor is part of our normal go-about aspects of life. Now, let's look at Ephesians chapter 5, and maybe I'll do better on this one. I'll, I'll read. Um, I won't read with you. I'll just let you read it. How about that? Ephesians 5.15. Let's start it. Look carefully. How many of you want to be wise? How many of you want to be unwise? <laughs> right? Okay, so there's something here for us. Let's go to verse 16. Let's, let's read it. Making How many agree we live in evil days? How many see that there's an urgency for something to get done, right? Let's read verse 17 then. 
So remember all you who raised your hand and said you wanted to be wise, right? Not fools. All right? Therefore is always therefore because we have to ask what the therefore is. Therefore, right? So in order for us not to be fools in the eyes of God, we need to learn to do something. We need a spiritual discipline that's going to help us not be foolish when it comes to living in the time that we live in, but yet there's an expectation spiritually from God that he expects you to be wise, and if you want to be wise, then it's wise for us to do the things that God said is wise, right? This is not hugely theological here. This is pretty, pretty practical. If we're going to be wise, then we've got to do the things that God says is wise. And what did God say was wise in this portion of Scripture? Redeeming the time because what? The days are evil. He goes on, he says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Let's, uh, let's get Dr. Luke's uh, version on this, shall we? I like Dr. Luke. He's seen, he tends to be more exact on things for us. Verse 22, let's read this one together. One day... I picked this passage of scripture because it's in our kitchen. It says on the sign, Jesus sleeps, be like Jesus. There's a sign in our kitchen that says that, doesn't it? Jesus nap, Jesus nap be like Jesus. And uh, when I thought about this, I got thinking, how many of you would sleep in the middle of a thunderstorm so bad that your boat is sinking? How many of you would just sleep sound like a baby there? Right? I, I couldn't do it. Motion sickness, I, I, don't, I don't think... It says a windstorm came down on the lake. What does, what does wind do to water? Waves, right? It tears it up. And, uh, and then it says, and they were filling with water. I don't think the guys were filling with water. So we have to assume this is the boat filling with water. So here are a bunch of fishermen having their boat filled with water. They're in the midst of the sea, and Jesus is what? He's taking a nap. We'll come back to that. But just hold that thought in your mind uh, as we get into this. So... This week, we're starting a five-week series, or I think it's five weeks, on redeeming your time. So what does this word, these words, redeeming your time, even mean, really? I mean, does God really care how we spend time today? Do you think God in heaven is worried about how you're spending your time today? No. He's not worried about it. Does God care? Yes. God cares. Otherwise, he would say nothing about it, right? When we don't care about something, what don't we share? The details, right? If I don't care how you drive your car, what am I never going to critique you on? Now, there are people in the Bible who were known for how they drove. How about Jehu? He drove his chariot furiously. You want to talk about road rage. Here's a guy that had road rage, and every time they sent somebody down to slow him down, what do he do? Either get in my chariot or get out of my way. I got places to go, right? We know he was on his way to see Jezebel. So when we look at this, we, we, we know that God cares because he says something about it. So let's look at scripture then and figure out what does redeeming the time 
What does that really mean? If God really cares, and he says, redeem your time, what does that term, redeem your time, from the book of Ephesians really mean? Because after expounding upon the gospel of grace, Paul spent four chapters in Ephesians, chapters 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4, building up to chapter 5, where he tells us to redeem the time because the days are evil. We know studying Paul's books, he always starts theological and he works towards what? The practical application. So based on what I've taught you theologically, this is why, or this motivation now, or this is what motivates you to redeem your time. So Paul is making an argument here for believers. What is our response to being adopted as sons and daughters of God? Paul answers the question by saying this, look carefully how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time. Now, we all understand we're adopted into God's family, right? We come by how? Faith, right? Faith in who? The finished work of Jesus Christ. So we walk by faith. We don't walk by sight. We walk knowing that Jesus was crucified for our sins. He died on the cross. His blood was shed. He was buried. And on the third day, he did what? He resurrected, right? This is the good news. The good news is Jesus isn't dead. He's resurrected. He's overcome sin, the grave, and death, and, and the devil. And he's given unto us the ability now to have everlasting life. This is the gospel message. And because of what Jesus Christ has done, he now has adopted us into his family. And we are called the children of God, right? So how do we get in? Was it our pedigree? No. Was it our works? No. Is it our good looks? Well, surely not that, right? God says, you're in my family because I bought you with a price. I've adopted you into my family. And through that process of adoption, I've given to you everything that I have. Right down to my Holy Spirit, right down to my presence, right down to my grace, right down to my mercy, right down to my love, right down to my long-suffering, goodness, gentleness, meekness, faith, temperance. Everything that God is, was, and ever will be is now available to us for how long? Eternity. Because you're in the family. You get to inherit that. So partly what Paul is saying is our response to the gospel should be that as Christians, we are cognitively, cognitively and intentionally redeeming time. So what does it mean to redeem? Well, redeem literally means to manage our time as carefully and as wisely as possible. It means to be time managers. How many of you can make more time? 24 hours is all you get, right? 24 hours is all you get. You don't get, to, how many of you can add days to your life? Ephesians 6.1 is about the best shot you got at that, right? Obey your parents and the Lord, and uh, the Lord will prolong your days on the earth, right? The only, pro, only uh, action that has a promise attached to it there. Um, the word redeem is an interesting word um, in the Greek. It's translated redeeming here, literally. It means to buy up or to ransom. How many of you can buy up more time? Or, or ransom more time? I like the word ransom, right? That, that, that makes it sound kind of a little 
Hold time hostage. If you need to be redeemed, or if you have been um, ransomed, if you're going to be free and you've got to pay a ransom, there's an exchange that takes place, right? So God says, ransom your time or buy up your time or redeem your time. I know people have said, I wish I could buy more time. I, that's the idea here. As Christians, we are called to buy up as much time as we can. But the question is, why? So it's not so that we can have more time to pursue our own selfish desires and wants. We know that's not true. We, we know that's not the purpose for it. But we are called to redeem time. Why? Because the days are evil. In other words, this is what the verse literally means. We are running out of time to do the Lord's will. We as finite beings are running out of time to do God's will. When Jesus Christ comes back, what can you do for him? You're not going to do anything on this planet for him because you're gone. The rapture is going to take place. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be what? Caught up, raptured. There's your Latin word, rapturo. Greek word for rapture is there as well. And you're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And you're going to be with the Lord. So what are you going to do on earth? Nothing. You're not going to be here. Your your ministry is done on earth. So Paul is saying through inspiration of the Holy Spirit here, based on the theological things that I've taught you, you need to redeem the time that you have left. You need to ransom. You need to buy up as much time as you got on earth to do God's will because your time is running out. Your time is fleeting. It's going away from you. So how do we redeem time then? Well, over the next several weeks, we're going to look at different aspects of how the author of time managed time when he was bound by time. Think about it. God who is infinite, Jesus Christ who is infinite, he has no beginning, he has no end, he's past, present, and future all at the same time, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but humbled himself and became what? Bound by time, space, and matter. He became his creation. He he became like his created ones. And during his time on earth, he lived a perfect life. He lived a lifestyle that could be emulated by any people, any time, at any place on this planet. How many think you could live like Jesus Christ lived? Did Jesus Christ eat? Did he drink? Did he sleep? Did he talk? Did he walk? Did he move? Did he travel? Yeah, he did all these things. He was in every point like we are, yet without what? So if you're going to take a teacher in the area of something that he's passionate about, because obviously he told you to what? Redeem your time. If he's telling you to redeem your time, then I'm sure he's going to leave us breadcrumbs in his word. He's going to leave us a path. He's going to leave us principles that we can follow and find out how to redeem time. And that's what we're going to chase over the next several weeks. So to start, I want to use a well-known passage, the passage of Luke, to illustrate how Jesus is the ultimate solution to our time management problems. 
So we read this just a moment ago. It says, one day he got into the boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. Maybe today it would read like this. So one day we all decided to get into our car and we're going to go to grandma's house. So we all got in the car and drove to grandma's house, right? The verse literally just tells us that Jesus, along with his disciples, so 13 of them, got together decided to cross a lake and they couldn't walk on it this time so they're going to take the boat and they're going to go to the other side how many got great theological truth out of that right this is an informative verse that's all it is it's giving you the facts of what's going on now watch what happens as the theology kicks in and as they sailed (laughs) who's doing the work they're doing the work, right? The disciples are, I, I got a feeling it's probably the Zebedee fishing crew that's in charge. Uh, that's who I think is probably managing what's going on. After all, the first time we found them in a boat, who was it that wanted to leave the boat? Peter, and he was, what, what by trade? Fisherman, okay. So we, we kind of know he's an important dude when they're in the boat, right? So I, I got a feeling that Peter, James, are kind of running the ship right now. And as they sailed, Jesus fell asleep. You know what that tells me? Jesus was human. Jesus was human. I mean, after all, why why do you sleep? (laughs) Because you get tired. What had Jesus been doing to this point? He's been doing a lot of spiritual work. He's traveled a lot. He's spoken to a lot of people. He's dealt with a lot of people's problems. He's healed a lot of people. He spoke to a great crowd right before they get in the boat. And they go to the other side. And in the midst of going to the other side, or the Greek literally says, as they were in the midst of traveling across the water, the wind blew. The wind blew. Now, Sea of Galilee, and I could give you all the geographical stuff. There's mountains that surround the Sea of Galilee. And when the west winds come in, hits the east side of the mountains, it creates a swirling effect that creates like a a massive tornado over the Sea of Galilee. So if you can imagine, they're in the middle of the sea. Where is the worst place to be in any storm? In the middle, right? So the Greek literally says, they're in the middle of the storm, in the middle of the sea. So if you can have a double negative, this is it. This is a bad storm. This isn't like it's sprinkling and the winds puff every once in a while and, oh, we're all going to pay. No, this is like, this ship's going down. These guys are scared. This is bad planning by Jesus. He didn't check the weather report. We're in trouble. Okay? <clears throat> the windstorm came down on the lake. Notice it says came down on the lake. Why would it come down on the lake? What did it hit? It hit the mountain. And when wind shears, what happens? It accelerates. So the wind's accelerating down the mountain. It's hitting the lake, and it's tearing the lake up. So imagine, you're, you're with Jesus, right? I mean, hey, who doesn't like to be with Jesus? You're with Jesus. Everything's going great. You get in the boat. Things are going great. And you get halfway out there, and it all falls apart. You ever been there in life? You ever been there? Everything's working out perfect. Things are going to plan. And then all of a sudden, reality hits, right? We're not in an Amish paradise. We're not in, we're not in this unicorn. 
Aryan time of life, all of a sudden things spiral out of control. And you can imagine the boat taking on the water, every side, the disciples are frantically trying to bail water, however, out of the boat. They're probably using their shirts even, trying to, trying to get the water out of the boat. Whatever means they can, the boat's being taken over by water on every side. So finally, after attempting everything that they could do, they've exhausted all the resources. At that point, one of them decides to go to the back of the boat, and they wake up who? Hmm. I wonder what he can do for us. Luke says, as the boat was being swamped, leaving the disciples with only one thing to do, verse 24, he shares what happens. It says, literally, Jesus got up, rebuked the wind, the raging waters, the storm subsided, and all was calm. say what's the point pastor I don't see anything about time I don't see anything about managing time really who is managing the whole situation who is the only one not freaking out who is the only one not running around frantic trying to figure out everything that they had no control over and let me ask you this who is the one controlling everything And that leads me to why I shared this story with you. Because the key to being a Christian and understanding what Jesus Christ really does for us, we always run to salvation first, which he does save us. But Jesus said he would give us something before he would ever give us other things. You remember what he, what he gave? It's part of his name. He's the prince of... Where's the peace in these guys? They're not having peace. But guess who's in the boat? Having peace. In the midst of trial. In the midst of tribulation. In the midst of everything falling apart. Who is the only one not freaking out? The Prince of Peace. The Mighty God. The Everlasting Father. Jesus himself. Jesus is in the storm as much as the other guys are. Jesus is being tossed by the waves as much as all the other guys are. Jesus is getting wet like all the other guys are. And yet he has peace that passes all understanding. How does he have that? How, what does he offer to us? Jesus offers you peace before he offers you anything else. It's interesting how many times you're dealing with somebody at the point of salvation and they just don't have a peace in their life at all. They have no peace. And then when they finally surrender and give their life to the Lord, what do they say? I feel like a thousand pounds has been lifted off of me. Why? They've experienced peace. The peace of God that passes all understanding. You know, in our culture, our culture is constantly throwing at us works-based productivity. If you manage, if, if you are an employee under, uh, under a corporation, you are going to be faced with works-based productivity. How many have ever been placed on a work action improvement plan for productivity? Or you get your evaluation, right? And they evaluate and they say, hey, you need to set some new goals. And the goals need to be higher than last year's. So let's set some new goals and let's, let's push towards those goals. So culture is constantly throwing at us this idea. 
which really claims if you do this, this, and this, or you do this program, or you do this exercise, or you fulfill X, Y, and Z, then you will find peace. The problem is what happens? You attain X, Y, Z, the program fulfills itself, and we got to move on to the next one. So again, we got works produced productivity. Do you realize that's absolutely contrary to what Scripture teaches? That is 100% opposite of what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches grace-based productivity, which says this, through Jesus Christ, you already have peace. So when we do the time management exercises, X, Y, and Z, we do that as a response of worship back to the one who already did the work for us. Let me ask you a question. When the disciples were on the other shore, were they like, wow, Jesus, thanks for leaving us out in the storm. That was cool, Jesus, but why didn't you just not get us in the boat in the first? No, what did they do? As soon as the boat hit the shore, what did all the disciples do? They worshiped him. And then they questioned among themselves, who in the world is this guy that even the wind and the waves obey him? It was his peace that intrigued them. It was his power that awed them. It was his deliverance that got them to follow him. And you know what? You and I are all the same way. If you've been saved, all three of those things took place in your life. Let's move on. I want to stay there, but I, I got to keep moving. So, Again, the disciples are in a swamp boat. The disciples didn't do anything to calm the chaos. They did nothing to save the boat. They merely woke Jesus up and trusted him to solve the problem. And what did Jesus do? He stilled the storm. You and I can do the same by trusting Jesus for forgiveness of our sins. That gives us peace with God. That secures us regardless of how productive we are or how well we might steward our time Jesus Christ is the one doing the work for us. Our works then are response to his grace that he's already shown to us. And that motivates us to do more good works for him. Listen to Romans chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through who? There it is right there. We've studied this before, Romans 5.1. How do you get peace with God? By being justified by faith. And if you're saved, God gives you peace, you're saved, and then you do things for who? And through who? And by who? The Lord Jesus Christ. So Romans 5.1 tells us right here how we have peace with God and how we are motivated to work and serve others. Time management tactics will never be your most foundational source of peace. Only Jesus Christ is the source of peace. Jesus said, peace I give to this world. Peace I give to you. As Christians, our ultimate source of peace, our ultimate solution for being swamped in life, our ultimate solution for being overwhelmed with all the world puts on us is, to be, is found in a God-man sleeping in the bottom of a boat. That's the reality. It's Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ is our source 
for what we do and how we do it. Well, I think uh, Ephesians 2.14 says it pretty well. Paul says in that passage of Scripture, Jesus himself is our peace. Jesus becomes the peace. That's how we have peace that passes all understanding is we have Jesus Christ. So let me ask you a question. If you have Christ in your life, what should you worry about? How tall you are, how much hair you have, your good looks, or, or losing your good looks. So now that we have established a foundation that God, that we've established a foundation of our place in God's family, that it's secure. It's not based on our works. It's based on his works. It's based on him giving us peace, him giving us salvation, him giving us provision, him giving us power, him giving us everything that we need for faith and godliness, the Bible tells us. Then where does that leave our works? What do we do then? If Jesus is the source of all these things, then there's only one thing that we can do as his people, as his creation, as those that have received his grace, received his love, received his mercy, received it. So what does scripture have to say about what we do with our time and how we manage it? Well, let's look at five truths that I can give you real quick. Number one, our longing for timeliness, timelessness is good and it's from God. We were created as immortal people. We were to have a relationship with God every day for how long? Forever. What messed it up? For by one man sin entered into the world and, what's the next phrase? Death by sin. So sin passed upon all men for all have sinned. We went from being immortal to very mortal. Very finite. We went from having a relationship in an everlasting way to a relationship in a very temporal way. That's why, what does John 3.16 promise at the very end of it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting. There it is. How do you overcome death? You overcome death with life. And if you have finite life and you have infinite death how do you overcome infinite death what must you have eternal life eternal life cancels infinite death so the wage of sin is infinite death infinite death sin causes you to be dead to christ for how long for this life and the next for the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is, there it is. The gift that God gives is not finite, it's infinite, it's everlasting. And if we have finite death in this life, and we have eternal death in the next life, in hell or the lake of fire, which is eternal death, the Bible says, then there has to be something that God's granted to mankind or made available to mankind so that we can redeem the time. What did he give to us? Everlasting life. This is why it can't be works-based. We were created to do works before sin ever happened. Check this out in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to what? Two things. Say it out loud. Work it and 
Doesn't that sound like work and work? He made you to work work. And to keep working it. And to not, and by the way, in the Hebrew, this has ongoing consequences. You work and you continue to work. But it's interesting, Genesis tells us that work wasn't hard. The word for work here, by the way, is the Hebrew word havada, and it's translated to mean worship. Check it out. Look what it says again. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to worship him and to keep his garden. To worship. Do you realize our work is worship? That's why 1 Corinthians 10.31 says it this way. Whether therefore you eat or you drink or whatever you do, you do for the glory of... You're worshiping God when you're at work. You're worshiping God when you serve your family. You're worshiping God when you work at church, when you work at your employer, when you work at your family. You are worshiping God because the act of work in the Bible is worship. So let me ask you this. When we save ourselves by our works, who are we worshiping? Us. There's the problem with works-based gospel. It's anti-God. It's anti-Christ. It's anti-work. Because work is worship. And if I can save myself, then who am I worshiping? Me. But if God is the object of worship, and God is the reason work exists, then when I work, who do I glorify? I glorify God. So let's dig into this a little deeper. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11 says this. He has made everything beautiful in whose time? In God's time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So we have God's thoughts in our heart, but we don't understand it. How many of you are there at the beginning of the world? How many of you are there at the end of the world? Well, we, we'll all hopefully be there. But we don't know what it's like. We haven't been there. But who supersedes time, space, and matter? So who knows the beginning and who knows the end? God does. So he says, as man, you don't understand these things, but God's made everything beautiful in his time. Well, what's his time? Time's irrelevant to him. Time's irrelevant. So what's he saying here? This is Hebrew idiom. Okay, it's a Hebrew idiom. God supersedes time, space, and matter so that you don't understand what God's done from you from the beginning of the world to the end of time, but you can understand it in this time. You can see him in this time. So who controls time, space, and matter? God designed something in our DNA that tells us we were made for more than what we normally do. We've been made for more than just ordinary life. To be human is to work. To be human is to work, and to work with time that our minds tell us is finite, but our soul assures us that we are infinite. So why is time finite? This leads to the second truth. Number two, sin has ensured that we will all die with unfinished symphonies. Kind of think of Beethoven here, right? What was his last symphony? He never finished it. Why didn't he get to finish it? What happened? He ran out of time. He died. He never finished it. 
And you know what? We're all going to die with things that are not finished, with work that's unfinished. We all have goals and expectations. We all have bucket lists. We all have these lists of things we want to do before we die. And the reality is we're all going to die before we ever get them done because we're finite people. We never get to finish the symphony. Listen to what Genesis chapter 3 says. When sin entered the world, death was ushered in alongside of it. We referred to this earlier. And Adam, and Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring, shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field, and by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will, what? Aren't you glad every time you're weeding your garden and all those thistles are in there, you're like, man, I need these. That's what it said. Did you catch that? These thistles and thorns are for you. They are a gift from God. You shall eat of it, cursed is the ground because of you. Thistles shall come forth for you. We also see this in 1 Corinthians 15, 21. Check this out. For as by man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. Talking about Jesus Christ. Human beings who were created to be immortal became mortal. Work which was created to be good became difficult. Time which was created to be infinite became finite. In short, sin has ensured that nobody will ever finish the work that they envision they can do in their lifetime. We're all finite. Our, our to-do list will never be completed. There will always be a gap between what you can imagine and what you actually accomplish. We all know that to be true, right? Look at number three. God will finish the work we have unfinished. So God created us to live forever, but sin broke the creation, broke the creation and made us mortal, time-bound, and finite. So where's the hope? Well, the hope is found in Jesus Christ. He walked out of the tomb on Easter morning with a redeemed body that could not be destroyed again, that again was timeless, immortal, and supersede time, space, and matter. The resurrection was Jesus' way of declaring that our longing for immortality has, has been right all along, and now we can experience eternal life through who? Through Jesus Christ. How does this all tie into church management or time management and redeeming our time? Well, to put it simply, the Christian story. God created us to live, to work in a perfect garden. Sin messed it all up. God promised to send a king to set everything right. And with his defeat of death on that Easter Sunday, Jesus proved emphatically that he is the promised king. We just celebrated that Jesus is what? The king of kings and lord of lords. And everything from that moment to the end of Revelation is about how God builds his kingdom until Jesus returns to finish what he inaugurated at the resurrection, and to make, as Revelation says, all things new. Revelation 21.5. So check out 1 Corinthians 15.58 with me. Look at what it says here. Therefore, and anytime you see therefore, you have to ask what it's there for. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in what? What is the work of the Lord? 
knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 1 Corinthians 3.9 builds on this a little bit. For we are God's, say that phrase. You're a co-worker of God. You know who your co-worker is spiritually? God. You go to work and you have co-workers, right? And what do co-workers do? Hopefully do. Hopefully they're productive alongside of you, right? Helping achieve the goal of whatever your business is. We are God's co-workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. It goes on to say, look back at the verse again. Um, not only are we God's co-workers, but we are his building. We are his field. Think of that. By the way, what is the church today? You are his church. Not this building, not the sign out front, but you are his building. So, we are God's co-workers. In Genesis, we're, God created a lot of things in six days, but what he equally remarked as great was what creation? The creation of man. First few days of creation was setting up a canvas. The sixth day, when he passed the baton of creation to us, his image bearers, he called us to fill that canvas, to literally fill the earth with things that point out his glory. It's the same thing Jesus did that Easter morning when he came out of the grave and he fulfilled or reinstituted the glory of God through man. Look at number four. The gospel is our source of rest and ambition. When, we, uh, when, when God doesn't need us to be productive, God doesn't need us to be productive. He needs us to be honest. He needs us to be honest. God's not impressed with what we can do for him before we're honest about who we really are without him. We often need ourselves to be productive in order to feel a sense of self-worth, but spiritually it's exactly opposite. Your works don't validate your spirituality. Your spirituality is based on your faith in Jesus Christ and your ability not to do things, which is kind of ironic. The fact that you can't save yourself is why Jesus needs to save you. The fact that you can't do great things for God is exactly why you need the Holy Spirit so you can do great things for God. So by becoming weak, we become strong. Ironically, that leads us to a wildly productive truth. Working to earn someone's favor is always exhausting. You ever try that? How many get tired at work? Because your boss demands or whatever. Right? Working to earn someone's favor is exhausting, but working in response to unconditional favor is intoxicating. It's fun. Why do pastors love ministry? Why do people love doing things for God? Why, when you go on a missions trip, do you come back all excited about what you did? Why is it kids go to camp and they come back all jacked up about camp and how exciting things happened at camp? Because they got a view and a taste of God. They stripped everything from the world and focused on God. So what is God's agenda? How can we work for God? How can we redeem the time? Well, let's look back at scripture again. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared when? Beforehand. So wait a minute. God already knows what he wants us to do. God already told us we can do it. God's already given you peace and the ability to do it. So then what is it? 
What is it that he wants us to do? Well, look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father which is in heaven. The phrase good works here is often misinterpreted. We can think of it this way. It refers to charity or ministry work. But if we look at the Greek word aragon here, it's translated work, task, or employment. It's a work, a task, or an employment. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may... 